District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Happy Monday, everyone. Welcome to episode 190 of District of Conservation. I can't believe there are only 10 episodes left until episode 200. We'll do something special for that. But anyway, I am your humble host, Gabriella Hoffman. I have just returned from Florida where I did a little bit of peacock bass fishing and I had some success. I will chronicle it a bit more. I had to try. It was like third times the charm with respect to bait and tackle. I tried flies first, not successful. Then I tried some lures, a little bite, but nothing successful. And then a bait that I used previously when I first targeted peacock bass worked. Shiners, shiner bait, the live bait. So it was a lot of fun. It was a good trip and I'm excited I got to go. But anyway, for this episode, I'm going to break down a few headlines you may have missed and I'll talk about a really neat story happening here in the D.C. metro area, specifically here in Northern Virginia, of a really cool phenomenon that a friend pointed to me since I was away and she, knowing that I like birding too, wanted me to see. So there are some headlines, some cool things, and I hope you guys also got to check out Conservation Nation episode 5 that has close to 40,000 views. We're really appreciative of that. Learn more about agriculture. I featured some of the participants for more long-form conversations on the show last week in a little teaser beforehand. So I hope you enjoyed it, and I would love to know what you think with respect to that. But here is what I have for you guys today. The nomination of David Chipman seems to be indefinitely paused. So last week, I for some reason forgot to report on this. The Senate Judiciary Committee, which approves or disproves nominations, actually was deadlocked in a tie vote on whether or not to advance the nomination of David Chipman to lead the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms is at a standstill. And this is from Reuters, so I'll link to the show notes. But interestingly enough, I also wanted to point to an Outdoor Life article by Andrew McKean pointing to a coalition of 20-some-odd wildlife conservation and gun rights groups that are openly opposing President Biden's pick, David Chipman, accusing him, if he were to be confirmed, of weaponizing the agency that enforces gun laws in America. And this is 22 members of the 50-member American Wildlife Conservation Partners wrote to the Senate leaders recently to oppose his nomination, a vote that was scheduled for Wednesday, I think it was the week before last. Signers of the letter include groups like Ducks Unlimited, Mule Deer Foundation, Delta Waterfall, and Wild Sheep Foundation, in addition to the National Rifle Association and National Shooting Sports Foundation, writing, Our collective opposition to Mr. Chipman's nomination stems from his long record of radical anti-firearm statements and actions. These give rise to our concern that if confirmed, Mr. Chipman will take proactive steps to impede gun ownership, hunting, and recreational shooting in a manner that detrimentally impacts wildlife conservation and management. They referenced his work as a chief policy advisor for Gun Owners for Safety, a gun control group founded by former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, and work for Everytown for Gun Safety, a group obviously founded by former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. He also has some conflicts of interest with one Senator, Mark Kelly, whose wife is Gabby Giffords, with his work with Giffords as well. And they said because 
Mr. Chipman has long-standing public activism against the Second Amendment freedoms and hunting heritage. We are compelled to oppose his nomination. Many of us are concerned that confirming a high-ranking official of one of the country's most prolific anti-gun organizations would politicize a traditionally apolitical bureau. Others fear Mr. Chipman will weaponize the directorship and lead to the undermining of our Second Amendment rights through punitive administrative actions. He also, if you guys remember through his hearing, he supported Air 15 bans. He could not define what an assault weapon was and he also lumped in AR style platforms as assault weapons and if you are somewhat familiar with the firearms and hunting industry AR-15s here in the United States them being semi-automatic in nature they're fairly common for home defense uses and also in hunting I used an AR-10 platform to hunt a deer so there's nothing really controversial with it unless you are not really yoked into Ballistics. If you're not really familiar with firearms culture and the fact that the their use is being more normalized now, and also statistically speaking, with respect to crime, AR-15s are not heavily used in crime, so they're often scapegoated a lot by the media because of their scary aesthetics. So that is very interesting. I will link to this full letter and some other members of this coalition uh, did not sign on. Not because they don't disagree with the selection of Chipman, but I think some of them are weary of taking overt political stances, given that they're nonprofit organizations. So you can read this Outdoor Life article. I'll also link to the full letter itself. Very interesting stuff. And also another tidbit with respect to why his selection concerns hunting organizations. Although the Second Amendment has nothing to do with hunting, the only connection you can make between hunting and firearms is the Pittman-Robertson Act. It goes without repeating the importance of the connection through that because the any firearm or ammunition you purchase through the Pittman-Robertson Act of 1937, and there have been some modernization attempts in the last few years, this law basically stipulates that any purchase you make, you will pay excise taxes in your fees or in your purchases and those monies collected by the department of interior will be dispersed to all 50 state wildlife agencies to go back to hunters education habitat restoration efforts and wildlife conservation efforts as well so that's the only connection but again the second amendment has nothing to do with deer hunting or hunting but the only connection you can make between guns and ammo and hunting is the fact that without guns and ammo you won't have all these critical pieces of funding happening So you have to be very careful of the consequences of advancing gun control from that angle because there's no other comparative revenue stream that can rival guns and ammo excise taxes. I don't see anything coming about, and I don't think we really need to change what we have in effect because hunting is conservation in a sense. Speaking of the Second Amendment briefly, I want to point this out. PolitiFact, which really is not impartial in my view, I was very surprised that they were fact-checking President Biden's June 23rd statement about the Second Amendment, and they rated his statement false. And here is the following statement. President Biden said, quote, the Second Amendment from the day it was passed limited the type of people who could own a gun and what type of weapon you could own, end quote. And here's their analysis. Joe Biden gets history wrong on the Second Amendment limiting gun ownership. And here are three bullet points. The Second Amendment limited governmental power, not the rights of individuals to own a weapon. Bravo. 
That's what we've been trying to communicate all these years. The second bullet point. Laws at the time that limited firearms ownership were primarily racist, aimed at controlling black people and Native Americans. True. The second national gun regulation law in 1934 did not rely on the Second Amendment. And they were talking about his plan to curb rising violence, which doesn't attack the actual root of the problem. He's wanting to go after law-abiding citizens. Uh, They say that President Biden's plan to curb rising violence relies on several steps, more aid to local police departments, expanding job programs for young people, more violence prevention programs, and tougher measures to shut down gun sellers who break federal laws. That's already being enforced. I don't think you need to take any more steps. You You just have to essentially enforce existing law. And he said rogue gun dealers feel like they can get away with selling guns to people who aren't legally allowed to own them. I don't know any rogue gun dealers who are doing this. If they are, they're very few and far between. And then the sentence that they also took to issue with with Biden's statement was the Second Amendment from the day it was passed limited the type of people who could own a gun and what type of weapon you can own. Biden said you couldn't buy a cannon. We reached out to the White House and received no comment, but Biden's statement is not accurate history. During the campaign, President Biden made a similar claim about cannons in the Revolutionary War and who could own them. We rated that false. This time, on top of that, Biden misrepresents what the Second Amendment says. The Second Amendment places no limits, experts say. So now they're citing historians. The text of the Second Amendment is short. Quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. End quote. University of Texas... University of Tennessee law professor Glenn Harlan Reynolds, a great guy, by the way, said the amendment's few words speak for themselves. The Second Amendment places no limits on individual ownership of cannons or any other arms, Reynolds said. There have been many court cases to resolve whether the amendment confers an individual right to bear arms in 2008. Actually, just recently, it was its anniversary in D.C. versus Heller. Setting aside ongoing disagreements over that ruling... Fordham law professor Nicholas Johnson said, quote, the amendment limited government action, not people, end quote. The first federal gun control law does not appear until the 20th century, he added. Thank you to PolitiFact for actually speaking the truth with respect to this and putting this out because it is so hard to dispute this with most media people pushing this live repeatedly over and over again. So give them credit where credit is due. My friend Danielle, who does some digital work for the Department of Interior, she pointed out to me pictures that she took at Huntley Meadows Park, which is a county park near me here in Northern Virginia, of a very unusual sighting of a rosette spoonbill. And if you've been to Florida, whether it's Southwest Florida or Southern Florida, you have seen these beautiful birds. And if you're not sure what they look like, here is how they're described. They are not listed under the Endangered Species Act, although the state of Florida has given them state-designated threatened protections, the IUCN currently lists them as a least concerned species, and the rosette spoonbill is the only spoonbill endemic or native to the Western Hemisphere. According to a study from 1996, this species can reach a length of 30 to 40 inches with a wingspan of 50 to 53 inches. It has pink wings and underparts with some red on the top of the wings with a white neck and back and pinkish legs and feet. While the species look almost entirely pink in flight, they actually have no feathers at all on their heads. The pink correlate The pink coloration comes from the organisms on which they feed, which are full of carotenoids, organic pigment, 
and the, as the name applies, the rosette spoonbill also has a large spoon-shaped bill, which it swoops back and forth in shallow water to capture prey. And sightings in northern Virginia and anywhere north of Florida are actually quite rare. There have been sightings in Connecticut. There was a sighting in Fredericksburg, Virginia in 2018. There have been other sightings. Sometimes they go as far north as Maine. And some are saying that, according to an article from PBS and NPR from Southwest Florida, that climate change inspires rosette spoonbills to relocate, and this was from September of last year. They're now moving further north. Um, They said that they could nest as far north as Arkansas and Georgia, evening more even further north in Minnesota and Maine and Quebec. They call this shorebird a local indicator species, a canary in the coal mine. If the spoonbill is not doing well, that tells us where there is a problem in the ecosystem. If it's recovering, it indicates that water management restoration in the Florida Everglades are working. So they made a comeback. They were previously extinct 30 years ago. The state of Florida spoonbills nested in Florida Bay. Now they claim it is less than 10% of those numbers are falling. And... Despite water management quality improving, they're saying that climate change is impacting the fish that they feed on. And interestingly enough, whether you agree with that statement or not, and there could be some questions relating to that, uh, in terms of that, they also admit there's a double whammy. It says the Florida Bay isn't as healthy as it once was, and the food that the spoon world Spoonbills rely on is no longer present due to sea level rise, yet South Coastal Florida's loss is rapidly becoming inland Florida and the rest of North America's gain. Spoonbills are now nesting in Georgia, South Carolina, and Arkansas. It is both a horrible story in that we've destroyed our coastal habitats and these birds have to go someplace else, but it also shows that these birds are resilient, unlike us humans, which I disagree. I think humans are also resilient too. So it's interesting that. There's something imperiling this bird, yet they are somehow miraculously thriving elsewhere. Is that something to be nervous about? Is that a positive thing? And with the sighting here in Northern Virginia, I think it is really cool. Why can't we enjoy this sighting here locally? I think it's great. And as they admit, even in this article, even if they are threatened by climate change or other environmental factors, the fact that they are resilient and can thrive somewhere else. And also, we are having a heat wave, too. So I think this movement could be temporary. I'm not an ornithologist. I'm not an expert. But my understanding, practically speaking, I was asking my friend Danielle, I was like, well, is it because of the heat wave? Are they coming up here? Why are they here? So this is not super out of the ordinary because, like I mentioned, there have been some sightings here in Northern Virginia before. It's an exciting thing for birders to see. It's kind of like the phenomenon of us getting snowy owls in the winter. They don't really go this far south here in the eastern shore of Maryland or to Reagan Airport in Arlington, but there have been some unusual sightings. Is it something to be nervous about? I don't think so, and I think a lot of these species can be resilient even with different factors at them. So I think we have to be hopeful about wildlife and even with different threats placed on them. Uh, The fact that they can live elsewhere and adapt is encouraging to me. It's a good sign for science, and I think we shouldn't be scared or or buy into alarmism that wildlife is completely going away. You have to be cautious, of course, but I think you can also take away from this that wildlife is very resilient. It can bounce back, and they can adapt to different habitats. So 
I will have to see if I can go check out Huntley Meadows and photograph this for myself, but that was a really cool sighting. I wanted to put some context out there, and if you want to learn more about this species, I will include it in the show notes for you all to read. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of our listenership hails from. So if you head over to Apple, subscribe, comb through some episodes, and leave us review. We'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds. All of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks. Really easy to find me. So engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. Catch you next episode.